Hello, what's up everyone? Welcome to Unnatural Episode 2. I'm Andy, along with my partner in crime, no pun intended, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Are you ready to take a trip down to Iowa today? I mean, I'd rather not, but if we have to. I know. People don't usually take trips to Iowa, do they? Have you ever taken a trip to Iowa? Yes, you have. You haven't just driven through. No. Because that's that's what most people do. So, no. So, my kid, my my older son loves water parks. Yeah. And we drove down to Northwood, which is literally just right across the border, like 45 minutes away from my house. So, we went to the little water park there. Yeah. But I think that is really the only time I've purposely gone to Iowa and stayed there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Iowa isn't <laughs> typically a destination. It's just kind of on the way to somewhere else. It's one of those flyover states. But this actually takes us to Iowa, and it's a little bit in South Dakota. Today we are talking about the Gitche Manitou murders. Now, I do have a question for you. Before you and I discussed this episode, had you ever heard of these murders before? No, I haven't. And honestly, it took every single ounce of my self-control not to start Googling after you said, because I was really just wondering if there's uh, a story behind the name, because you say it and I just think, oh, get you a man or two. And I'm like, yes, queen. Yeah. <laughs> Get you a cup of man. Start canoodling in the back. I don't know. I, I do commend you, though, for not Googling anything about it. And it's going to be interesting to get your perspective on this. So let's get into it, shall we? Yes, I'm excited. Did you ever go out partying at a park at night? Yeah, there's um, there's a park in Mankato, Minnesota, that I went to college there for a semester. <laughs> and we would, well, we didn't take the cars out there because you had to, like, climb down. It was by the waterfalls. Yeah. Um, but there was this area that was, like, our hangout area. And we would have fires and um, drink orange juice and pop and roast marshmallows (laughs) (laughs) yeah drinking pop roasting marshmallows drinking orange juice what were you putting in the orange juice though that's the question (laughs) and by the way uh telltale sign of a midwesterner two midwesterners here of the united states pop is slang for soda or coke (laughs) right but anyway so it's kind of creepy when you're out there at night, wouldn't you agree? Nowadays, yes. You will not catch me outside by myself. Even with a couple other people um, in a wooded area. Like, I'm, I'm not going camping. The last time I went camping, I almost got eaten by a mountain lion. 
Wait, what? So dark and woods is not something that agrees with me. <laughs> okay, uh, note to self, don't go camping with Emily or don't even suggest it. Okay, got it. So especially when there's only a few of you going out into a park late at night, it can be a little bit intimidating. You know, anytime you hear a noise or maybe the wind starts blowing or whispering. Right. Or even if you get lost, let's say you have to go pee somewhere, you get lost and you freak out a little bit. Your mind starts to wander. Your imagination kind of gets the best of you. But in no time at all, you're kind of back hanging out with your friends and everything's good again, right? Right. Yeah, well, in fact, you were never really in any danger in the first place. You don't know that. Well, that's true, but (laughs) especially in this case, and that's kind of the point here. So today's pod seems so cliche. It really does. Like it could be right out of a movie. And to be honest, I'm surprised there isn't a movie about this. But this one is very real. And it all took place on one November night in the state of Iowa in 1973. All right, Emily, so before we get into it, I've got some fun facts about Gitche Manitou State Preserve. You asked me where the name comes from because it's a very unique name, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would. So the name Gitche Manitou comes from the Algonquin Indigenous American tribe, and it actually means Great Spirit. It's also the name of a state preserve in far northwest Iowa that kind of straddles right along the South Dakota border. In fact, it's only 15 minutes from where I reside here in Sioux Falls. So the Gitche Manitou State Preserve in Lyon County, Iowa, it is the site of several, actually, ancient Native American burial mounds, as well Yeah, it's also the oldest exposed quartzite in the state, which is actually about 1.6 billion years old. So if you feel old, talk to Gitchy Manitou. It's a lot older than you are. (laughs) I'll still square up. (laughs) Right. So I may be 30 years old, but my body is is a solid 250. Okay, it might feel 1.6 billion years old at times. Okay, originally, the state of Iowa used this land kind of as a quarry. But in 1969, about four years before these murders, it officially became an Iowa State Preserve. And just a few years later, it would be the scene for one of the most brutal murders the area had ever seen. So let's set the scene here. It's November 1973. And the number one movie of the year, this is kind of fitting, it was The Exorcist. God, I love that movie. It still gives me nightmares, but I I have to watch it in the daytime now. Right. It's one of the greatest (laughs) horror movies of all time, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it really, I I think, and I was... um, I was just reading something about it that it that was the movie that really set the scene for um, like the found footage genre. Yeah. And that really paved the way for a lot of movies that kind of came after it. Yeah, I love uh, sometimes like I have a really big love hate relationship for found footage because I love that it 
it adds it 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 feels more real and more spooky. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when people are running or in like you know the cameras jiggling all over the place, it kind of gives you a headache too. It certainly does. And speaking of things that feel spooky and real, this case certainly does. So it's 1973, and this is kind of a tale of a horrific crime that took place, but it's also really a tale of perseverance, survival, and quick thinking that ultimately led to justice. On the evening of November 17th, 1973, five teenagers decided to take a short drive from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, across the border into northwest Iowa, into Gitche Manitou State Preserve. It's an isolated spot in the middle of nowhere, really. So it's kind of the perfect place a group of teenagers would want to party without any adults finding out. You know what I mean, Emily? When you're a teenager, you're trying to get as far away from adults as possible so they don't know what you're up to. 100%. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> I've been, I, I've actually been to Gitche Manitou myself a few times. I, these days I live in Sioux Falls. And like I said, it's only about a 15 minute drive or so outside the city. And even to this day, there's really not much to it there. It's pretty in the spring, I would say. And it's quiet, but other than the fact that these murders took place so many years ago to make it an infamous destination, there's not a whole lot of reason to visit this place, and it wouldn't be on a lot of people's radar. It's not one of those places that people flock to time and time again. The one place that everyone seems to gravitate to when they go there is this old abandoned stone building and it just has a massive amount of graffiti on it they paint over it and people put more graffiti on it as the years go on hey actually we'll put some pictures on our instagram so our listeners can take a look here but as a side note a lot of people who visit this preserve they actually believe that the murders took place inside this building in fact they didn't As far as I've researched, the building doesn't play any part in this story at all, but it's just kind of an interesting side note to the story. So the five kids, 18-year-old Stuart Beatty, 17-year-old Roger Essam, 15-year-old Michael Hadrath, 14-year-old Dana Beatty, and 13-year-old Sandra Chesky, the only female in the group, by the way, were all hanging out at Gitche Manitou, This late fall evening. Remember, it's November in Iowa, so it's a little chilly out there. It was around 1030 at night, and it actually became even darker outside due to a fog that had kind of rolled into the area. So Stuart was playing his guitar. Remember, it's the early 1970s. So bell bottoms all around. (laughs) Exactly. He's (laughs) busting out some James Taylor or something like that on his guitar. And Given the time period, they were probably listening to the 8-track in Stewart's van as well. And they even started a fire. And while it's said that they didn't bring any booze, they did share a joint on that chilly fall night. So the marijuana was in the air and they were having a good time 
playing the guitar, listening to music. Around a half hour after they arrived, so not far after they got there, they heard noises outside of the trees. Nope. Now, may exactly. None for yeah, me. Th- that, that's when I would probably have my cue to get out of there. But mainly it was just kind of the crackling of branches, the rustling of leaves, that sort of thing. Like easily to be attributed to wildlife for the unparanoid. They definitely noticed something was out there. I'm guessing they were thinking, like you said, it was some sort of animal. But remember, Emily, this is Iowa, so there's not like there's any large predators that are roaming around. Right, but there's it, deer. and Exactly. It could be a deer. It could be a raccoon, a dog, something like that. Bigfoot. Yeah, it could be Bigfoot. Who knows? Maybe. Who knows? Maybe we'll uh, have Bigfoot in a future podcast episode. Okay, so at this point, 17-year-old Roger Essam who, by the way, was Sandra's sweetheart. They were, da- they were dating at the time. He decides that he's going to go investigate. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a bow by your side and something happens and they decide to go investigate. Well, they're trying to feel more manly, and they want you to notice that as well. And that's kind of what Roger was doing here. He was trying to let Sandra know that everything was okay because 99.99% of the time, guess what? It is okay. Everything's fine. Well, he gets up. He gives Sandra a quick peck on the cheek. And according to Sandra, he says, I'll be right back. Which Never say that. Exactly. Yeah. Watching so many horror movies over the years, you know never to say that. But... Almost as soon as Roger enters the woods, shots are fired. Now, now who fired the shots? Who else was there that night? Well, that's the question. As it turns out, it was three brothers. They were known as the Friar Brothers who were terrorizing the teens that night. Now, they had no connection to these kids, Emily. They had never met them before. They just happened to be at Gitchy Manitou that same night. They were apparently there to poach a deer, of all things. Once they realized that the kids were in the preserve, however, well, then they got their three shotguns out and started stalking the kids. I mean, this is just crazy. This you know, happenstance of them showing up at the same time the kids were there and then deciding to stalk them for whatever reason. Now, the brothers, their names were Alan, he was the oldest, David, and James. They were all in their 20s. They smelled the marijuana smoke, and that's kind of what drew them to the kids. And apparently they decided that they were going to impersonate the police in order to get the marijuana. And it, and I'm thinking, really? You're going to go that far just for a little weed? I mean, it's the 70s. Just roll up and be like, hey. Exactly. Share, Was, maybe. Wasn't weed yeah. everywhere back then? I feel like it was. I don't know. I wasn't there. That's what I always heard. Anyway, so they had positioned themselves on a ridge They kind of gave them an optimal angle on the teenagers. And when Roger came to check things out, for whatever reason, they fired. At him? They fired at him. And 
Sadly, it's believed that Roger Essam died from the gunshot wound upon impact right then. So right out of the gates, one out of the five is dead. Sandra's boyfriend. Now, immediately after Roger went down, 18-year-old Stuart Beatty, you remember him, he was the guy with the van, the guy with the Mm -hmm. guitar. Well, he, he got up and then he was shot and wounded. And so the kids, obviously, all chaos ensues and they're hiding. And I imagine these kids, they're experiencing just sheer terror at this point in complete shock. Remember, they, yeah. had, they had no idea who was shooting at, him, at them at this point. Yeah, they thought they were the only ones out there, right? Right. They had no idea where the shots were coming from, how many people were out there, and what the motive would, even was at this point. Right. So it's at this moment that the brothers finally called out to them, ordering the teens to come out from the trees. So, of course, mm-hmm. you know, if there are people that are shooting at you in the middle of the night, you know, you're in an unfamiliar place and they order you to come out, you're worried. You don't know where those guns are pointed. You're probably going to listen to them at that point, especially if you're a teenager, you're vulnerable. Well, these teens did listen. and No fucking way. They did. And they came out into the open. They immediately, though, began to question the brothers, and they asked them what's certainly the obvious question here. Hey, why are you shooting at us? That's what they said. Yeah. So one of the Friar brothers responded by shooting 15-year-old Michael Hadreth in the arm and then said they were with law enforcement, which was obviously a lie. And the kids knew that, right? They didn't. They had to have. I, 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 yeah. I've done a lot of research into it. It doesn't say whether or not they knew it right then, but they had to have. Known. I mean, these kids at this point, when two people or three people are shot at this point, they know that it's not law enforcement. So this couldn't have been further from the truth. All of these guys actually had rap sheets and they had kind of been in and out of jail for most of their adult lives. In fact, get this, the youngest of the brothers, James Fryer, who was 21, he was in jail at the time. So at this moment, he was in jail. That's because he was part of one of those work release programs so he was allowed to work as a tow truck driver during the day but he had to come back to the jail every night and sleep in the jail so Hmm. now you're you're probably kind of asking yourself but wait this was 11 o'clock at night so why wasn't he in jail at this point right Mm-hmm. Excuse me. You're <laughs> supposed to be home in bed. Right. Well, apparently, <laughs> one of his brothers called the jail and pretended to be his boss, saying he... Of course. Yeah. He said he needed him for another shift, and apparently the jail bought it because, remember, this is 1973, so... Yeah. 
These Friar brothers, were they were all criminals, but on this night, they were more than just criminals. They became sociopathic killers. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's absolutely free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a whole lot more. Basically, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. And you want to know what else? You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which is really cool. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The brothers, March Stewart, Michael, Dana, and Sandra, up to where they were parked. And remember... Stuart and Michael have already both been shot at this point, so I'm guessing there's a lot of panic. There's lots of blood being lost, and the surviving kids just kind of want this nightmare to end. Did they Were they wondering where the other kid was? I'm sorry, what was his name? Roger. And remember, Roger Essam was Sandra's boyfriend, and he was shot dead on sight. Now, Sandra... And the other kids didn't know he was dead at this time, but clearly the killers must have known that he was dead because they did not march him up with the rest of them. So once they got to Alan Fryer's blue pickup truck, Sandra was tied up and thrown inside the truck. Now the rest of the kids, though, they were left outside. The brothers were kind of talking amongst themselves about what to do, and it was decided that Alan and Sandra would head to this old farmhouse just across the border in South Dakota. So once they were out of sight, the remaining survivors, Stuart Beatty, his younger brother Dana Beatty, and Michael Hadreth were all executed in front of Stuart's van by the two remaining brothers. Did they already leave with Sandra at this point? Like, did she have to see that? Sandra was already gone at this point. Alan had taken her in his blue pickup truck to the rendezvous point, which was this old farmhouse, which actually Alan was a worker at this farmhouse, and he was a farmhand there. That's how he knew where to go. He told his brothers to meet him there. Now... The three kids that were executed, they were found actually the very next day by a couple who were visiting the preserve. And Roger was found the day after that because he was a little while back in the woods. Now, apparently, while they were driving to the farmhouse, Alan is just kind of striking up a casual conversation with Sandra which is pretty weird, who I'm sure she was scared out of her mind and just kind of trying to keep her cool. Remember, she's a 13-year-old girl. You just saw all of this horror happen in front of you, and now this guy's just talking to you like nothing even just happened. Yeah, that's absolutely terrifying. I can't even imagine what was going through her head at the time. Yeah, she's just a kid. And now apparently, while they're driving to the farmhouse... 
uh, Alan's striking up this conversation. It's about a 20-minute drive, and not long after they get there, David and James, the two other brothers, show up after having ditched the van. So having, you know, just committed mass murder and the fact that they've abducted a 13-year-old girl, it seems like the two older brothers, David and Alan, kind of needed to talk things out. So Alan and David go into the farmhouse, presumably to discuss what to do next. They leave James, the youngest brother, who, remember, is supposed to be in jail at the truck to guard Sandra. And sadly, Emily, you can probably guess what happens next, unfortunately. Do we need a trigger warning? Right, yeah. Well, James proceeds to rape Sandra inside the truck. I mean, this poor kid. What she's been through in such a short span of time in just a few hours, remember, is pretty mind-blowing. I mean, she just went out with her friends to have a good time. Now they're all dead, and here she is being raped. It's just absolutely terrible. It's just getting worse and worse for her. It really is. Now, a little time later, David and James actually drive back to Sioux Falls to take James back to jail for the night. And it's at this point that one of the oddest things to happen in this entire case takes place. So while David and James are gone, Alan is believed to be the one who is supposed to actually kill Sandra. In fact, he's supposed to take her into the farmhouse and kill her. But after chatting with her for a while, he gets to know her and he gets cold feet. He even asks her for her phone number, believe it or not. And he said in a few days, once all of this blows over, he'd like to take her out. What? Isn't that insane? He's 29 years old and she's 13. Not to mention he just killed all of her friends. Yeah. Hey, I know I killed all of your friends and let my brother sexually assault you in the back of his truck. But do you mind if I take you out on a date next week? Exactly. You know, get over get over your trauma. You'll be fine. And I think that this could really work for us. No. After all of this transpires over the course of this horrific evening, Alan actually decides to drive Sandra back to her house in Sioux Falls. I mean, this doesn't usually happen in these cases. Usually the person meets a terrible ending, but she gets driven home. So, I mean, did she kind of play along like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe after this all blows over, is that kind of, do we know, is that what she said to get out of it? It sounds like she does. It sounds like she shows him her personality. A little bit and he gets to know her a little bit he in fact has a stepdaughter who's around the same age so according to court documents he kind of empathizes with her what? now the next day of course she goes to the police station she tells them the whole story as she should exactly and here's the thing by all accounts it seems like the police actually think that she's making part of this up. Or maybe they think that she even has something to do with the murders herself. No. I mean, it's ludicrous. But eventually, the local law enforcement, they decide that if she's telling the truth, 
Maybe Sandra can help them find this old farmhouse. So have the bodies been found at this point? The bodies of three of the kids have been found, and then Roger would be found the next day. So they know that something's going on. Right. But they're not sure exactly how Sandra is connected. Oh, okay. Now, they actually spend the next 12 days scouring the area for this farmhouse, and they just really find nothing. And remember, at this point, the media is involved, and they're reporting on it up to the minute. Now, Sandra is putting in almost as many hours on the case as the cops here. She's obviously gone through some serious trauma, and she wants to help find these killers. But for for her friend's sake, she really wants to do justice to this and resolve it. So that's why she's staying so heavily involved. But she doesn't exactly remember where the house was. Remember, this is the middle of the night here. So one day, they're driving around a rural area northwest of Sioux Falls when she spots it. And just as they arrive, who else shows up by sheer coincidence? Well, it was Alan Fryer, the oldest brother in his blue pickup truck. Amazing. What an idiot. He's just living (laughs) life, going to work like it's a normal day, like he didn't just kill three kids. Right. Hoping to take Sandra out someday. It's, It's absolutely just bonkers. But so then, of course, Alan is arrested by the police who are there. And soon after, his brothers are arrested as well. They're booked in the Lyon County Jail, which was the county where the murders occurred. But this story doesn't exactly end there. So while they were incarcerated in the local jail, you're not going to believe this. Two of the brothers, Alan and James, actually escaped the jail. Due to a door being left open, and James then hightails it all the way to Wyoming. This really shows how different things were in the early 1970s than they are today. Yeah, it seems like people were escaping jail left and right or getting, what's his name, Ted Bundy just kind of was, what did he do? He jumped out of the window of the courthouse. Right. It just seems like things, it was a little bit easier to escape back in those days. Well, finally, he was tracked down in Wyoming and brought back to Iowa. Now, they were all convicted of murder shortly thereafter and sentenced to life in prison, not surprisingly, without the possibility of parole. And actually, that's where they remain 48 years later, they're all still alive and they're all still in jail. They're locked up in the state penitentiary in Fort Madison, Iowa. Now, did they ever talk about, I mean, they never talked about why they did it. They never really had a reason. They never, did they ever admit to it? The What I can decipher from reading into this case is they were three career criminals who were out to poach a deer, saw these kids, and decided to terrorize them. It's it's just crazy. A normal person wouldn't do this, but that's why 
we're doing this podcast because let's face it, this podcast isn't about normal people. And it's never said which one said, hey, let's go do this to these kids. But clearly they were all acting as a group. And maybe it had something to do with Sandra. Obviously, she was the one that that survived. And Mm -hmm. maybe it had something to do with, you know, some sexual fantasies on their part. But exactly. Because they were all in their 20s, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were uh, 29, 24 and 21 years old. So she was the only one that was spared. And as for Sandra... Well, she was obviously changed forever after that night, as you can imagine. Yeah, anyone would be. Yeah, a young girl of the age of 13 would be. Now, in school afterwards, she was ridiculed and actually made what? she was made fun of throughout her entire high school years and many of the girl many of the kids in the school would call her Gitchy girl. That was her nickname. No. Oh my yeah. god. That's awful. As if she hadn't been through enough already and people are going to bully yeah. her. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. And she refused to actually speak with the media for years. Of course, you know how the media is. Right. Every year when the anniversary would come around, they would request an interview and she would always turn them down. And she did that for decades until about 10 years ago, that is when an old schoolmate actually reached out to her and let her know that he was writing a book about his friends who died on that fateful night. He actually had friends that were there that died that night. So this affected him too. And because she knew that he was coming from a sincere place, she decided to be interviewed. And not only just interviewed, he he wrote a book on her that he titled Gitchy Girl. Now, it became a bestseller, and Sandra has spoken out more about this case in recent years. In fact, recently, she went back to the site of the murders, and they actually... Is that her first time back? She's been back there a few times, but this time was significant because she was allowed to place a small, modest memorial to commemorate her friends who died on that day. And that memorial remains there to this day. I actually saw it the last time I was there. It's kind of covered in grass a little bit, but you can find it. And it's a memorial to all four victims who died that night at Gitche Manitou State Preserve. So she interviews, She they, there's this book. I mean, what, is, what does she say about it? What's her perspective? Well, she's been affected her entire life. And the crazy thing, when they first took her, yeah, she didn't know that any of her friends had been killed at that point. She didn't realize until the next day and the day after that her boyfriend, Roger, and the rest of her friends had all perished that night and it affected her for the rest of her life she's done numerous interviews since in the last few years anyway and said how it's affected her and kind of how her life changed after that day and if you put yourself in her shoes 
how would your life not change after that day? Even if you're 13 years old, the whole trajectory of everything that's to come after that is going to be different. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, like, did she did she have a lot of issues or did she kind of take it as something to make her stronger? It, it's, it seems like she's taken it as something to make her stronger. She hasn't gone into a lot of her personal issues, okay. but she has said that she realizes that it's better to speak out and let the public know rather than keep it all built up inside. That's what she's learned over the years. And she's a survivor. It's a, yeah. it's amazing. A lone survivor, which is a different psychological thing in and of itself. Well, and the remarkable thing is, remember, when those two brothers left, David and James, to take James back to jail that night, it was the understanding that Alan would kill her. Yeah. Were the other two, I assume the other two were pretty pissed when they found out that he didn't. They, they certainly were pissed. And Sandra has said that in subsequent interviews after the fact. And the fact that she revealed her personality to him and she let him know a little bit about what she was about really in the end that saved her life. Yeah. And that's that, that's pretty amazing because that doesn't usually happen in these cases. They say that's what you're supposed to do if you're if you're kidnapped or you find yourself in in a scary situation like that. You you want to humanize yourself, and for her, luckily, it worked. Yeah, and that's what saved her life. And Sandra Chesky is now still here today, and she's an advocate for other victims. She's heard for other from other women. Over the years, other girls who have said, hey, I was raped and your story really helped me because let's face it, when you hear from other people that have been in similar situations as yourself, obviously Sandra's situation is much different than many people, but still women who have been through a traumatizing experience, they can relate. And Sandra has said in interviews that women feel comforted by hearing her speak out on this story and that's got to help her at least a little bit considering all the trauma that she's gone through thank you guys for tuning in for another super awesome episode of unnatural you can hit us up on social media we are on twitter at unnatural the pod find us on instagram at unnatural the podcast we have a Facebook page, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Um, you can hit us up on Gmail, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash unnaturalthepod. What's coming up next week? Next week, we are heading back to the 1800s to take a look at Hell's Bell, the Black Widow of the Midwest, Miss Belle Gunnis. Ooh. I don't know why my ooh was so long, but I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for being here, guys. It's unnatural. We'll talk to you next week. See you next week.